It's my privilege this morning to introduce our guest speaker. You may remember him from when he taught back in August. He's uh, the associate pastor of one of our neighbor churches, Neartone Church. So I'd like to welcome and please join me in welcoming Andrew Johnson. Thank you very much. It's all downhill from here, folks. I'm just kidding. Uh, I am excited to be here. This is something that might make everybody uncomfortable, so I'm going to lead with it. So, texting while driving. Apple, with the, I think it was iOS 11, introduced something that it was automatic and you had to go in and turn it off, such that when your phone was moving faster than a walking place, it detected that you were driving and thus would actually close your phone from easily being able to be opened. And it would, if Andy were to text me, it would text him back, letting him know, hey, Andrew's driving. If it's an emergency, give him a call. Otherwise, he's not going to contact you. I turned that off immediately um, because I didn't care. And then with iOS 12, I was like, I should probably turn that back on. So I turned it on. And so now when Andy texts me, he will get that message. Here's the other thing. While I am driving and I have that on, it will essentially lock my screen. So while driving, if I go to do the unlock function, it doesn't work. And then I have to touch it again. And then it has two buttons that pop up. One says cancel. And one says I'm not driving. So hand on the wheel. I'm not driving. Click, and then I go inside to, to text, to change the podcast, to do whatever. How many of you, let's just go 24 hours, how many of you have texted while driving within the last 24 hours? Hands up. Okay, everybody's really awkward and shy because it's like the Tyrannosaurus Rex arm <laughs> across the room. By the way, for everybody, that was more than half the room that everybody didn't want to admit. They text while driving. Here's the reality. T-Rex arms included. We all know that texting while driving is foolish. We all know it. And I would even go as far to say, if you are anything like me, you get to be real judgy while driving on the road and say you're just, I don't know, hypothetically going on 45, and you're going about 70 plus, and you look at the person next to you who is also just nose in the phone while driving, occasionally looking up, and you want to honk. You want to yell at them while you're going 75, also over the speed limit for those who are keeping track here, and, and say to them, get off your phone. This is dangerous, and yet, when it comes to us, we are all content to be on our phones and text and drive because we're better than everybody else who does it. We know what we're doing. It's fine. It's just this one time. It's just this, these two times. Okay, it's just this email that I need to check right now. We all do it. We all do it, and yet, we think the rules or the wisdom of this doesn't apply to us. We're past that. Paul writes to Romans about a similar issue, not texting while driving, but a similar issue in their hearts. 
Okay, so there was a lot in this environment right now when Paul's writing to the Romans, there was a whole lot of those people finger pointing going on within the church between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, there were tensions building up and there seemed to be evident a loss of purpose and a loss of focus. Now, Paul's attempt in this passage is to get at this and deliver a significant dose of humility for their faith, as well as a challenge for their relationships with others. I'm going to go out on a limb and say he probably has something in this text for us along those lines as well. So if you don't mind, bow your heads with me, and I'll pray. Lord, I thank you so much that we get this chance to get into your word. This is about you. This is always about you. This is wholly about you. Draw our attention towards you. And in this text, Spirit, reveal to us the things that you want to rid from us and the things you want to put back in and build us up towards your likeness. Uh, we trust you with this time. Lord, let my words be wise. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. As I have heard and, and seen before, you've got Bibles in front of you. Now, Catherine is going to have the Scripture behind me. If you have shown up and you don't have a Bible, pull it up on your phone, grab the Bible in front of you. If you are new here, that Bible is considered a gift. Take it home with you, own it, write your name in it, don't let other people steal it. So, go with me. We are going to be in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I should have marked it. Makes for faster looking. Heath is coming off of this section within chapters 9 through 11, and it's kind of one thought that Paul has. And he's breaking out this thought over and over again. And again, we here at the bridge are taking smaller chunks, so we're not having to digest the whole thing. Uh, recap, God has began his missionary work through Israel, and then Israel turned their backs on God. In 9 through 11, Paul is clarifying this entire process of Israel being drawn in and rejecting God. God, as clarification, God has not rejected Israel. God has not rejected Israel. They were the ones doing the rejecting, okay? They were the ones doing the rejecting, and their status apart from Jesus is a result of their sinful choices, okay? God's grace, lastly, God's grace has gone out anew to the Gentiles, and now the Gentiles are coming in droves to Jesus. That is where Heath left y'all last week. So we're going to jump in. Uh, join me, chapter 11, verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. So now he's going back to the Old Testament. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Paul is going back, back into the writings of the prophets and uh, the, the historical writings through Isaiah, and he's recontextualizing a bit of Jewish history. So, 
Back in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10, that's where this first set of quotes comes from. Isaiah is writing to Israel about what God has done as a result of the long and constant rejection of him that Israel has done. As a result of their actions, God has silenced their prophets and their leaders. Now, this is before the exile. Isaiah is writing to them about this. This is the context of the first one. Paul is recontextualizing it, which, again, Paul did it through the use of the Holy Spirit. We let him do this. We shouldn't just open a random Old Testament passage and say, I think it means this, and I'm going to apply it to this today. I I highly caution you, don't do that. Paul can do it because he did it with the Holy Spirit. So he gets a pass, we don't. Good. Okay. Paul is recontextualizing this passage to say that it isn't merely indicative of Israel at that time, before the exile, but it is also, in fact, still over the Jews as a race, as a nation, as a result of their sin. He goes on to David, Psalm chapter 69, verses 20 through through 23. This is where this comes from. David is crying out to God about his enemies who want him dead, who want him humiliated, and who want him gone. And David is crying out for them to suffer for their actions. He's asking God, please step in and do something here. Well, Paul is recontextualizing this. He's bringing it into this focus. And he said, this isn't just their past, the enemies of David. This is actually Israel's present as well. At the time of this writing, it's just not that Israel was separated. They went into exile. They came out of exile. All was made well. He's actually saying, no, in fact, Israel was, they rejected God and they are still standing in their rejection. Heisman arm out towards God. They don't want him. They are holding him at arm's length and they want to approach him as they see fit. Verse 11, join me again. Verse 11, so I ask, did they, Israel, the Jews, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Okay, Uh, I have three kids. This is what came to mind. Like a child that builds up the blocks as high as they possibly can, only to come barreling toward the stack to watch them all collapse. Is this what God has done with Israel? Does he build them up, build them up, build them up, only for this gigantic running into the pile and watching them all fall? Is that really what God is doing here? By no means. By no means. Exclamation point. It's an emphatic no. Definitely not. Not a chance. Dream on. That's ridiculous. That is not what is happening here. By no means. Okay, continues on. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Remember, God is a missionary God who wants everyone to know shalom, his peace, and his fullness. He chose to work through Israel to get that aspect about who he is into the world. And now he, God, is choosing to reveal himself to a people that were not seeking him, that did not know him, and did not know what they needed from him. 
Now, his goal is to spread his goodness worldwide. That is his goal. God choosing to do so through the Gentiles is not a change of plans. So, um, I, I was talking to Karen and Andy, and I said, okay, have you guys seen this before? It's, it's the story, the true story of the whole world, summed up in six symbols. Y'all have had a frequent talk about the, the salvific arc, the redemption arc, creation, fall, redemption, uh, justification, yeah, new creation. Okay, I'm adding to it, but it's all still kind of the same. So in the beginning, God came down. He came down to earth. He created. He brought His goodness. He brought His Imago Dei to all of the earth through man and said, this is who I am. This is who I am, and I want to show this world that I just created how good I am through this relationship. That lasted two chapters. And then sin came. Chaos entered in. All that was good, all that was complete in that connection that man had with God, with each other, with the earth, even with themselves, it was shattered. It was all broken. And the reality is this is still affecting us today. But God didn't say, all is lost I'm done with you people, wadded up the paper, threw it out, started over. No, he continued on. He continued on and he pursued them. He pursued Israel. He pursued a people and said, I love you. I want you to know my goodness and my fullness. This right here is the entirety of the Old Testament. That one symbol is all of the Old Testament. I was listening to the, the last two sermons from Heath. He's talking about the Old Testament, where there is this cycle where Israel will, will come to God, and God will say, I love you. I have made a covenant with you. And they say, yes, we need you. We like you. What's that? And then they walk away, and they turn their back on God, and, and then bad things happen. They come back to God. This cycle can be summed up in a much shorter phrase, two phrases, one Remember the covenant, and two, you forgot the covenant. That is the Old Testament. That is that symbol. God continuing to pursue a people and say, I love you, and I am the one who is going to make you whole. Israel continued to turn their back on God, and yet still we're waiting for a Messiah, for the promised one. And that came in Jesus Christ. Jesus came. He began. He began that which they had been longing for. He began the, the start of the new covenant, the new kingdom. He started it, but it didn't come fully. Through his death and resurrection, then he called a people who followed him in that new covenant and sent them out much like he, God, pursued people. He then asked people who were going to follow him, join with me. I am going to send you out. I want you to represent me to the world. I want you to show up like I called Israel. And I am saying, go and be me until, as Andy was helping me with that last one, until I come back and I make all things new. I, there will be a recreation. Israel will be found in Jesus we will be found in Jesus. All the promises of the covenant will be fulfilled, and He is going to come back. It has started. It has not yet been completed. 
this is where we find ourselves. This is where Israel found themselves. And it all hinges on Jesus Christ. Okay, now we are going to come back to this. I wanted to show you this because this has always been God's plan. This has always been God's plan. And so God choosing to call the Gentiles is not a change of plan. It's still his desire to reach out to the world and show them who he is. Now, will this fall? Yes, it will. So, on its side it goes. Join me again. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass, their Jews, Israel, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? See, their rejection of God has hastened God's call to the nations. The world is better now that his glory has essentially been put through an amplifier. More people are having the opportunity to know about him. Like so much of Romans, God is showing his sovereignty and wisdom in the calling of the Gentiles and the calling again of the Jews. Now, A.W. Tozer, a Christian writer, he talks about how God's understanding of all of human history is kind of like this. All of human history, God's vastness and authority over it is like God standing with a ticker tape with one hand pinching the start and one hand pinching the end at the same time. God is at the start and the finish the whole time simultaneously. I say that because God knows as he stands at the start and at the end, he knows what is going to happen when the Jews see the Gentiles come to faith. He knows what it's going to do to their faith and what it is going to cause in them. The Jews return might come at the salvation of the Gentiles. And Paul is cluing us into this vastness, into God's glory, and he is excited about it. And he wants the audience there to, to listen up. Now, he says in verse 13, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Paul wants them, the Gentiles, to lean in a little bit. To lean in, pay closer attention. In this room, uh, there are probably maybe a few of us who have Jewish heritage. On the whole... We are the Gentiles. That's us in this room. So as Paul says, Gentiles, listen up. That's our call to lean in. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead. If the dough offered as the first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. See, it isn't about the branches. It's about the root. It isn't about the receiver. It's about the source of power. It's about the wonder-working power of the blood of Jesus Christ. So, he continues on. If some of the branches... Some of the branches were broken off 
some of the Jews were removed from the vine, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. It is 100% about the root. It is about Jesus. It is always about Jesus. Paul is stressing this point, and we should not go on before we stress it either. It is always about Jesus, always and forever. It is to his name. It is for his glory and our existence. Our existence is through him. The life we live is a life by faith in the Son of God. It is through him. It is to him. It is about him. Let us not be so arrogant to look down on anyone else as if we have it figured out, as if texting while driving doesn't apply to us. It is solely about the root. He goes on, verse 19. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Okay, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For God did not spare the natural branches. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Um, Paul picked up a mic and then dropped it right for them. This little tit-for-tat battle between the Gentiles and Jews has reached Paul's ears, and he is not having it. Stop it. Stop it, children. Stop it. Seriously, everybody, knock it off. If the Jews have lorded their longtime covenant people status over the Gentiles, knock it off. This Jesus-powered olive tree that the Gentiles have been grafted into is through God, the gardener. They are nourished by that same covenant promise that allowed the Jews in in the first place. So, Jews, you are not better than them. If the Gentiles have lorded their newfound faith over the Jews because they've had a perennial history of failing miserably, remember the covenant, you forgot the covenant, it is well established, knock it off. You didn't earn your spot on the tree. It was a gift for you to be included. And who said that the Jews, the branches that were cast off, are done forever? God didn't say that. You are not better than them. Verse 22, note then the kindness Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Now, I have to stop mid-verse because this bears repeating. Do we all realize how insanely kind God is to us? Do we realize how kind He is to us? Now, imagine yourself. Again, we've established most of us in this room, probably all, or close to it, uh, are Gentiles. So imagine yourself, a Gentile branch, 
who finds yourself on this wild olive tree far, far away, what did you do to get from the olive tree far, far away to this infinitely better, significantly more nourishing olive shoot way on the other side of the garden? Did you fashion a knife out of the end of your branches? Cut yourself from the olive tree, throw yourself to the ground, and then drag yourself over to the other tree, somehow shimmy up the, the trunk, cut a little niche in it with said knife you've already used once, and then graft yourself in? Is that how you got to be in the kingdom of God? Is this what they did? No. God is kind. It's kind of silly. I had, I had me without you that I was listening to while doing some sermon prep last night. And maybe it was a combination of Aaron singing and what I was reading. But like I was almost in tears at this part. Just because, not laughing at myself, but as I kept looking at this saying, note the kindness of God. What did I do? What did you do to earn your spot across the garden on this new, significantly, infinitely better tree? What did you do? Nothing. The gardener chose to cut you from your wild olive shoot and bring you over. He chose to nourish us, to give us life. That's Jesus. We come at his behest. 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches that were cut off, that were thrown down, that were removed so that you had a place, how much more will these be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, back in August, when Heath asked me to preach, he gave me the topic, the guest pastor, the chance to speak authoritatively on abuse and how to love the abusers. Ha, ha, ha. Now, Heath has really outdone himself, giving me one of the many passages in scriptures that seem to beg for someone to determine, once and for all, whether God leans more reformed and we can never lose our salvation, or if God's more Arminian where we can lose our salvation. No, I'm not taking the bait, Heath. I'm not doing it. Uh, Y'all can make your elders dance and ask them these questions. I'm not going to fall on that sword today. Now, the question, it seems on the table, though, the question and the focus is extremely poor. When we get to this passage of Scripture and what we're left with, after all that we have read is to bicker about either how much sinning we have to do to lose our salvation or how much good someone has to do so that we agree with them that they are definitely a Christian. What 
a waste. That is not where Paul wants to take this discussion. This is not where he wants us to be distracted. At the end of this long argument, instead, what's important to see in these verses is the back and forth favor between the Jews and Gentiles that this is Paul's clear call to all believers to do three things. Be humble, be faithful, and be vocal. Be humble, be faithful, be vocal. If we have been miraculously joined to the nourishing, life-giving, life-altering root, the God of all things, the gardener, has taken us from where we were to where we are. If that is what he has done, what are we going to do in light of that salvation? What are we going to do in light of that salvation? So, here are the three things. One, be humble. Thank God for the salvation that He has gifted us with. Look upon our Savior in awe and gratefulness. Glory in His name. Glory in His face. Recall the faithful pursuit of the Jews that God did Recall the faithful pursuit and realize that God has offered you salvation in and only through Jesus Christ and sends us out. If you have trouble remembering this call, if you have a trouble remembering this call to be humble and all that God has done, just remember me dragging myself across the floor and then thanking God that that wasn't what you had to do to come to faith in Him, that He called you. Be humble. Second thing, be faithful. As the writer of Hebrews said, chapter 10, let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Turn your eyes away from yourself. I mean, Paul, he was not pulling any punches. He just flat out told them, do not be arrogant. Do not be arrogant. He repeats it for us. Don't be arrogant. Get your eyes off of yourselves and turn them towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Be faithful in Christ. Encourage profusely. Growing up, I loved the fact that uh, Barnabas was essentially the son of encouragement. That's what he was known as, the son of encouragement. And in my younger days and still today, I want to be known as that. Not Barnabas, but an encourager. I want to be known as somebody who is encouraging profusely. That when people think of me, they think of a bright point and a happiness that I have given them because I have said, God is good to you. God is good in you. Let us be this to one another. Let us encourage first. Even when you are really angry with somebody, how can you approach them in kindness and love and encouragement? Encourage profusely and be in challenging communities with one another. You have transformation groups. If you are not in a transformation group, grab out the card. Say, I need to be in a transformation group. How do I get in one? Make sure you turn that in. 
the bridge knows that your proximity towards Christ and your role with the gifts that God has given you are going to be exponentially growing if you are in a transformational group. So get in one. Be in that with one another. Lastly, okay, we got be humble, be faithful. Last one, be vocal. Now, I am kind of taking from all of Romans at this point, building up to this last point, but Paul is still not pulling any punches. I am ministering to the Jews, so I'm ministering to the Gentiles so that the Jews come to Christ. I am ministering to the Gentiles so that Gentiles come to Christ. What am I doing? I am ministering so that people know Jesus. So what do you think he wants us to do? The same thing. Be vocal with your faith. While your eyes are already away from yourself because you are going to be faithful and encourage your brothers and sisters, keep looking beyond the proverbial church walls and look towards those who are not yet on this life-giving tree. With God, the gardener's heart in mind, with his heart in mind, seek out those who are far from him and bring the good news to them. God loves them so much, not just to send his son into the world. He loves them so much, not just to send the son into the world, but to send you in his name out to go and draw them in to a restored relationship and Christ-likeness that is going to restore to us how we were meant to be. Get outside of your car. Get outside of your church walls. Get outside of your uh, own ego. No offense. And go out in his name. Ask God how far he wants you to go for his name. I know that's kind of a scary question, but don't put a limit on God, on what he has planned for you. Paul told the Gentiles not to count God's pursuit of the Jews and think not to count out God's pursuit of the Jews. And I think we'd be wise not to be arrogant to tell God, well, this isn't part of your plan. I don't need to worry about this. You would never send me to Africa. I don't even think about that. Maybe spend some time with Jesus and ask him, what do you have for me? Who are you drawing me to? Where might you be taking me so that I will go in your name? Be humble. Be faithful. Be vocal. Now, at the very beginning, talked about how foolish we all were, almost everybody in the room, whether we did T-Rex arms or not, how foolish we are all with texting and driving. Because in a way, we like the Israelites and these newly minted Christian Gentiles acted as if we have arrived. We are beyond the wise practice of not texting and driving, and we are better than it. That's foolish. Let's self-assess as a community. Are we humble? Are we faithful? Are we vocal? I mean, this is just true guest pastor um, moment here. I'm going to encourage you in your groups this week for your transformational groups tonight and this Wednesday. Talk about this. Are we these things? Do these words describe the bridge mantras? Are we humble? Are we faithful? Are we vocal? And then let's get more awkward. Let's ask the Holy Spirit individually. Spirit, am I humble? Am I faithful? Am I vocal? 
I know if we just say, are we as the bridge these things, just like when we're driving in the car, judging all those who are texting around us, and we get to be judgy McJudgertons, it's real nice when we point the finger and say, yeah, we as the bridge aren't this way because that person and that person aren't pulling their weight. Let's drill deep inside of ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit about our walk and our response to His goodness. Here's my final challenge to everybody. When you are driving in the car this month and you are tempted to reach for your phone, to text while driving, or email, or change the podcast, or any number of foolish things we do while in a murderous vehicle, first step, don't do that. Second step, pray and ask Jesus to give you the strength to be humble, to be faithful, and to be vocal for his name. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, you are the root that is giving us life. Lord, thank you for the reminder today that we have not provided ourselves with salvation and we are not the ones who are keeping us near you. It is your strength, it is your goodness, and it is your power that is powering us, that is empowering us. Lord, let us not walk away today thinking we're not doing enough or walking out in shame, but Lord, let us walk out in thankfulness and gratefulness for all that you have done and all that you are doing to work in and through us for your good name. Draw our eyes to your face, Jesus. Draw our eyes towards you so that our existence is about you, not about us. Jesus, thank you. In your name we pray, amen.